0: just didn't know if it was true at all. One by one, it seemed like everything I had been taught growing up was falling by the wayside. Was I losing my faith, or was I in some kind of mid-faith crisis? I wasn't sure. Marcus had been raised in a conservative Christian home, and a conservative Christian school, and a conservative Christian church, where He felt he had always been given every answer, and there was always, for each question, exactly one right answer. By his 20s, his experience wasn't lining up with what he'd been taught. He'd been taught that if he believed that God would bless him, but he had just gone through a broken-off engagement, and he was living in a dead-end career. He'd been taught... To be wary of all those bad people out there who weren't Christians, but the non-Christians that he had gotten to know as an adult seemed like pretty decent human beings, by and large. And then he thought about his family's racism that didn't seem to fit with the people of color that he was getting to know, and he wondered how it fit with the Bible that he had been told was true all along. Marcus was questioning everything. Was there really a God at all? Was Jesus real? And if he was, what did he actually teach? Is the Jesus he was taught the real Jesus? And what is right and wrong? Is there justice and injustice, good and evil, or are they just human constructs that we've developed because they give us meaning? What is love? What does that look like? And does he even need a church? And what should that look like? He deconstructed his faith, the faith of his upbringing. He wasn't living in unbelief, understand, but he was doubting everything from the ground up. He wanted reassurance that he was actually dealing with something that was true, not just because his mom and dad in church and school had said so, but because it was actually true. Marcus eventually deconstructed and then reconstructed a new faith, jettisoning jettisoning things that he once believed, but that he could no longer square with reality, or with Jesus, or with the Christian scripture. For those watching him, they were terrified. He's leaving the faith, he's abandoning the truth, and for him, it was scary. But through the process, Marcus lost a self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental, prosperity gospel of his youth, and gained a close relationship with real, living, historical Jesus of Nazareth, who is alive and at large today. The Anglican priest and author, Tish Harrison Warren, writes, Deconstruction is a buzzword these days. The term ex-evangelical has emerged as an identity marker in an activist movement. People's faith stories and their losing faith stories are are often emotional and, and vulnerable." They grow out of biography and personal experience So Christians struggling with faith, need love, and listening ears, not merely argument. Still, she adds, we have a responsibility as a church to thoughtfully engage wider cultural conversations around deconstruction. Jesus is the truth that sets us free, we believe. Asking hard questions about faith is normal. It's a necessary part of Christian maturity, but there are better and worse ways to critically assess claims to truth. In the first century, this is where Theophilus stood, believing yet doubting, asking questions and unwilling to settle for things just because he had heard they were true. He wanted to know, was Jesus really the Lord? Did what he had heard about Jesus actually happen? Just decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, this wealthy benefactor by the name of Theophilus was troubled imagine him being troubled by the suffering that he watched the Christians going through. Suffering he too experienced. He was likely a Greek Gentile who had converted first from paganism to Judaism and then from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, he had deconstructed two religions already and he was getting ready to start deconstructing the next perhaps. He wanted to know the truth. Can only speculate about the internal tensions within the church as followers of Jesus figured out how to do diversity at a time when the Jewish church was becoming the Gentile church, at a time when those who were apostles had had been, you know, were, were getting older. Some of them had already died. And uh, this influx of people, this multi racial, multi ethnic movement of people who have nothing in common except Jesus, you uh, we're facing fierce opposition from outside, and Theophilus wanted to know if it was true. He wanted reassurance. As one who had deconstructed his pagan faith and then deconstructed his Jewish faith, he wanted to know that he was building his life on reality and not, not on some make-believe, cartoon-like, you know, you know fairy tale. Because there was a cost to following Jesus. Christ's early followers faced attack from both their fellow Jews and their fellow Gentiles. Was it all true? And so a trained physician named Luke, a close companion of Paul the Apostle, set about the task of writing a two-volume history from the birth of Jesus up to that, that present moment. We know it is the gospel according to Luke and the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is the longest of the four gospels by verse. Luke is the largest single contributor to the New Testament with more verses written than than even Paul's 13 letters. Luke is the only New Testament author known to be a Gentile and not a Jew. And for those deconstructing a perhaps toxic version of a religion you grew up with, my prayer is that we can all sit with Theophilus as Luke shares with all of us what he had been able to confirm as a historian about Jesus, about the real Jesus. This is Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from, uh, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We see here how the apostolic community has become our link between Jesus and the church. He talks about these things having been handed down. He talks about the eyewitnesses. He talks about the servants of the word. This was a time when Paul was still alive and Peter was still alive and the entire apostolic community would would still meet together with with those who were also numbered among them. Uh, And they became that link historically between Jesus and his church. See, that apostolic community, some some call it the apostolate, produced the documents that we call our New Testament. And these are people who walked with Jesus. The first gospel, Matthew, was written by St. Matthew. He was a tax collector, a Jewish conspirator with with the Roman authorities to, to take the people's money until Jesus came up to him at his tax stand and said, Levi, that's what he went by, follow me, and he followed Jesus. He wrote the first book of the New Testament. John who was a teenager, he was the the disciple Jesus loved, the youngest of the disciples, the one who reclined on Jesus' chest. He wrote a gospel. He left three letters, and he left an apocalypse, our book of Revelation. Peter, who walked with Jesus, his entire ministry became chief among the apostles and wrote two letters of our New Testament. Mark was Peter's translator, and his gospel bears Peter's imprint. And Paul witnessed the risen Christ and was accepted by the other apostles as one of their own, and he wrote 13 letters. Luke, this physician who wrote Acts and and Luke's gospel, uh, you know, he... Was Paul's traveling companion, and and his history bears Paul's imprint, and and James wrote a letter. He was 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 one of the apostles, one of the twelve. He was there, you know, leading the church in Jerusalem. He wrote a letter as well. And Jude was his brother, you know. This apostolate or apostolic community was a tight knit union of leaders who knew Jesus. They had known Jesus during his earthly ministry. These documents flowed out of a tight group of people who all knew and trusted each other. They understood that this stuff about Jesus of Nazareth was no myth. The historicity of the events of Jesus, earthly ministry, were everything. They gave their lives, most of them, for that reality. And so Luke writes as a historian The last event in Luke-Acts is Paul, in the very end of the book of Acts, renting a room in Rome, because that's when Acts was completed, during Paul's lifetime. Uh, Luke was written before that, he says, and so we're probably looking at a date around 60 AD. Um, That's 27 to 30 years after the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, 30 years ago, for some of you, was the Stone Age. For some of us, however, 30 years ago was yesterday. 1992 was just 30 years ago. Uh, 1992 was the election of Bill Clinton. Was the Cartoon Network being launched? Was the opening of the Mall of America, the beginning of the war in Bosnia? Here in St. Louis, it was the bankruptcy of Transworld Airlines. In LA, it was the Rodney King riots in South Africa it was the end of apartheid it was it was yesterday and the apostolic community was able to remember 30 years ago or 27 years ago um, they were a tightly knit community who 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 had come to certain convictions because they were there and they didn't forget and they came to their faith in a totally different way from the way most of us in modern western societies come to believe our our religious convictions if we have any. Um, Usually today the way people come to believe something is they see it or hear about it and they like it. And it sounds nice, it sounds edgy, it sounds interesting, it sounds useful, it sounds helpful. So they say, I'm gonna believe that. But that's not how the early Christians came to their convictions. You look at the Apostle Paul, he hated Christianity. He hated Christians. He couldn't stand the way they mixed men and women together in the same groups. He couldn't stand the way women were allowed to speak. He couldn't stand the way that they interacted with Gentiles and called them family, the way that they didn't always honor the food laws, the way that they had stopped offering sacrifices, the way that they had lifted up Jesus as some kind of God and claimed that he had risen from the dead. He hated Christianity with all of his heart. He persecuted Christians. He tried to kill them. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, the deacon. It's a costly thing to be a deacon. And then Jesus knocked him off his horse on his on a road to Damascus. And he said, whoa, I hate this, but this is reality. I hate this and I have to deal with this. I have to make sense of this. I have to come to terms with this. And he ended up becoming not only a Christian, but the Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. It's a totally different way of determining what you believe based on what's true not based on what you want to be true. Um, and the fact that we've got four different different gospel accounts as opposed to just one uh, speaks to the credibility because you've got multiple historic written witnesses in need. And only so tightly bounded a community could have seen this New Testament happen. You know, none of the New Testament documents arose in a vacuum. They arose within this very tightly knit community of people who had walked with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry and who had seen him rise from the dead. Uh, This was a tightly knit and tightly bound apostolic community of people who were all going to their deaths for the sake of the message of Jesus because they were so convinced that it was actually true. And within this tightly knit community, members of this community who had been given authority by Jesus to do so wrote authoritative documents that this tightly knit community instantly received as scripture from Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit to be read in the churches just like the scripture had been read in the Jewish synagogues. These people all knew each other. You you look at Romans 16, the the, the last chapter of Paul's amazing letter of, of the gospel and, and the greetings he sends. All kinds of people. They all knew each other. They were all scattered all around the Medi- Mediterranean. But, but Apollos and, and, and Priscilla and Aquila and, and, and Junia and, and all of these men and women. It was a tightly bound apostolic community. Peter sends greetings. I send my greetings as does Mark my son. you know There was no room within this tightly knit community for forgeries. There is no room within this tightly knit apostolic community for people to make up stories about Jesus because they would've all come undone almost immediately. If you made something up, everyone would know it because they, they were the community that had walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry, who had seen him rise from the dead, who had witnessed his communicating to the apostles, the authority which he was giving them. You see, the apostolic community, the apostolate is our link between Jesus and the church because it is there that we find the New Testament documents given. And Jesus vouches for the authority of this apostolic community. It's what he said. Jesus ties the apostles' teaching directly to his own. Uh, you know, you look at John 13 where Jesus says, I tell you the truth. He's talking to his disciples, his apostles. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever whoever accepts me, Uh, accepts the one who sent me. In other words, if you receive the words of Peter or Matthew or John, you are receiving the words of Jesus. John 13, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know the one I've chosen. In other words, he's saying, not Judas, just the rest of you guys. He's telling us that accepting him is tantamount to accepting him. Jesus told his apostles that he would remind them of what he said and give the apostles further instruction it wasn't to all the christians that he said this he said this to his apostles he said all this i have spoken while still with you but the counselor the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything i have said to you jesus was telling him i'm going to remind you you're not going to forget it's going to get written down and this fits with how Jesus speaks elsewhere around the scriptures. Think of the way Jesus speaks of, of, of our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, uh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and, and the Ketuvim, the, the first five books of, of the Law of Moses and the Prophets and and, and the writings of the Psalms. Jesus says, um, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and, and the Psalms. Um, all three Branches of, of Hebrew scripture must be fulfilled, everything. Jesus had described a view of, of divine inspiration of scripture that included even the details, even the accent marks. And In Matthew 5, he had said, Not the least stroke of a pen will pass from my law. Not an iota, not the accent marks, not the little tiny eye on the bottom, not St. Augustine, in book 17 of his Contra Faustum*, said, If you believe what you like in the gospel... And reject what you don't like. You believe not in the gospel, but in yourselves. Because this is the apostolic community that Jesus vouched for. And the members of the apostolic community vouched for one another as well. I mean, certainly Paul, as a Jewish scholar, knew what he was saying when he told Christians to read his letters in the churches. You know, Colossians 4. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans what did you read in church? Over there? Scripture. It's the Jewish tradition. It's the synagogue tradition. In the synagogue, what you would do is is, is whoever's doing the reading that day, they would go up to the Bema. That's the, the the place in the front and center where, where the scrolls are kept and the word is read and they would take the scroll of, of whichever one and, and read it. It's like Jesus when he entered the, 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 the synagogue in Nazareth. He, he, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from it about the blind seeing and the lame walking, and he said, truly I say to you, these words are fulfilled in your presence, because what was read in the churches, what was read in the assembly of God's people had always been the scriptures, and Jesus, and and Paul is here knowing exactly what he's saying when he says, I want you to read this in the churches, and I want you to make sure that the Laodiceans get a copy as well so that they can read it in their church as well. When Paul instructs the early followers of Jesus to read it, he's understanding to be the word of God. And this is precisely how Peter talks about Paul's letters. Paul has 13 letters accredited to him. I find no reason to doubt any of them. In 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about Paul's letters. and says that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures other scriptures. Paul, his letters according to Peter, the chief of the apostles, were scripture. So we have it on the authority of Jesus himself that these Hebrew Old Testament scriptures are from God and are trustworthy even down to the accent marks and Jesus vouches for the authority of his apostles, that apostolic community being the ones who produced the New Testament except for Judas, he says. He promises to remind them and further reveal himself through them after his death and resurrection. Peter writes his gospel through his companion Mark. Luke writes his gospel and acts alongside Paul. Peter, always chief among the apostles in the book of Acts, vouches for Paul's letters and calls them scripture. And this apostolic community or first century apostolate then becomes the living memory of Jesus within which the New Testament documents are written, circulated, and received as scripture by the churches all in the first century. Speaking of these apostles, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Jesus is saying the connection is that tight. You know, the church never created the Bible. Even Luke talks about how these were handed down to us, this story of Jesus. Sometimes people suggest that maybe. Maybe just the, 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 the apostles or the prophets just dreamed powerful visions, and, and with no intent to deceive, they, they described through their own human understanding what these visions meant, and therefore they could have been wrong. And yet, St. Peter, in writing about Scripture, insists that that is the one possibility that must be ruled out. He says in 2 Peter 1, Above all, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. St. Paul even talks not of the Bible being inspired, but of it being expired. It is God breathed, he says in 2 Timothy 3, literally exhaled from God, And, and, and the whole thing he says. Now, granted, There were no printing presses in the first century. The church in every city didn't have a scroll of every single book or letter. They had to be hand copied and circulated by person. You could just post it to the mail or load it up into the cloud. Um, Around the year 150, the moratorium canon in Rome lists the books that the churches in Rome had received as scripture and their New Testament You know, This was still within living memory of the Apostle John, who was the last of the the Apostles to to die around the year 100. But in 150, they listed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, all 13 letters of Paul, James, all three of John's (laughs) letters, Jude and Revelation. The only missing items were Hebrews, and nobody knew who wrote that. And Paul's letters, which had probably originated in Rome and therefore had been sent out and never made it back. The only... Uh, Twenty years later, Irenaeus of Lyon lists the exact same New Testament we have today. So these were very early documents and circulated early. Uh, But nobody thought they were creating the Bible. These were handed down to us, Luke says, and specifically so that you might know, he says. He says, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The term to know here is more than merely a cognitive recognition of data points. Uh, It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, when when Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but when Jesus returns, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, he says, but then I will know. And the knowledge then, now I know in part, but then I will aptly and experientially know, epithynosical, to the extent I also have been aptly and experientially known. This is not just cognition an acceptance of information. It's to know Jesus, to know the real Jesus, his, his person. Not a wished-for Jesus, but the real one who is alive and at large today the late theologian and, and teacher R.C. Sproul uh, reminisced once about a, a friend of his who had gone to seminary with him and his, his theological direction had gone, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an opposite direction. And uh, and and he remembers years later catching up with his friend and the friend said, yeah, I don't really believe the Bible. I mean, uh, certainly not as inerrant, authoritative, all of that. Um, you know, I think they're helpful religious... Books that can inspire us and 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 but but Jesus is still my Savior and my Lord. And R.C. asked him, Well, how does Jesus exercise his lordship over you if not through his teachings in the Bible? And the other pastor thought for a while and he said, Well, you know, I guess it's it's really through the the, the teachings of my church and my faith community. But How does Jesus exercise his lordship over your church if your church isn't under the scriptures, but rather over them? You know, it's the price of a love relationship with anybody is that they have the freedom to tell you when you're wrong. Uh, Does any married person here want to disagree with the fact that the cost of a marriage relationship a loving marriage is that they have to have the freedom to tell you you're wrong. Um, you know, you you remember the the movie, or maybe you remember the the, the earlier movie, or maybe you even read the novel, the, the Stepford Wives, where the men of Stepford, Connecticut, um, are sick of their wives nagging them and not not being interested when they're kind of interested, um, maybe not taking care of their body the way that they would like, maybe not always offering positive words, but sometimes being dripping. Dreeping faucets of criticism, and so they just decided to get rid of all their wives and replace them with robots. And the robots were all drop-dead gorgeous. They all had 28-inch waists, 6 feet tall, slender Barbie dolls with, with flowing hair, and they were always so happy to see their husbands come home. They always had a big meal planned. They were always in the mood whenever you were in the mood. They were just, they were perfect. They always thought what they hung on, every word their husband said, whatever he said was the most brilliant thing, and they would tell them so, and yet what was missing? Was there any love? No. Because they couldn't tell them that they're wrong. You don't want to step for God. If God is real, you want to make sure you have the real God. And the real God has to be able to tell you you're wrong, and it's through the Christian scriptures that He does so. You know, the, the escaped slave and Union spy Harriet Tubman was a woman who, who she knew Jesus experientially through His Word. You know, she would, she would. Be driven by Isaiah 16, three to hide the fugitives and do not betray the refugees. She was called Moses because she never lost an escaped slave, but always got every single one to freedom. And she would speak God's word back to him all through the day You know she says I prayed all the time about my work everywhere I was always talking to the Lord when I went to the horse trough to wash my face and took up the water in my hands I said oh Lord wash me and make me clean when I took up the towel to wipe my face in my hands I cried oh Lord for Jesus sake wipe away all my sins. When I took up the broom and began to sweep, I groaned, O Lord, whatsoever sin there be in my heart, sweep it out, Lord, clean and clear. Here was a woman who knew Jesus, the real Jesus, experientially, to know him and to know him with proper confidence. Luke writes to Theophilus saying that you may know the certainty. You know, we... Postmoderns cringe at that word certainty. Uh, it seems so dogmatic. It seems to allow so little wiggle room, and 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 it, it seems to presume an epistemology in which we're able to know things certainly. But Luke, and, and it's, it's true. i I'll say it's true that often when a Christian has doubts, other Christians and pastors just shut them down and say, you know, you just need to pray more and read your Bible more. Um, and, and they're made to feel guilty about doubts. Paul, that's not what Luke is, is doing here. He's not suppressing anybody's doubts, certainly not those of Theophilus. Theophilus clearly had doubts. He wanted them addressed, and so he had commissioned Luke to help confirm what's actually true of the things that he's heard, because he's heard all these stories. He wants to know whether it's actually real, the things in which he was trusting in, even in the face of his doubts, were, were there, Doubt is not the same as, as unbelief. Unbelief rejects Jesus and says, you are not my Lord, you are not my Savior, and I will not follow you. That's unbelief. Doubt is saying, Lord, I'm not sure what's true anymore. I need your help. I need to understand. Doubt is a calling from God to ask questions, to look further, to ask harder questions, to dig deeper, and to seek to know with confidence that you may know Jesus himself, his person, the things, Luke, Luke writes out, the things that have been fulfilled among us because Jesus was a fulfillment of God's promise to come to his people, to save, to heal, to restore, to usher in a saving kingdom of love and justice and peace. No one can turn to Jesus for you, but my prayer is, as we go through this gospel according to Luke, is that as you deconstruct and reconstruct your faith, as you face your doubts head on, as you bring your questions to God, my prayer is that you will see Jesus and maybe even see Jesus again as if for the first time because it's all about him, our Savior, knowing him and knowing his person. Bassem was born in the Middle East to a a very religious Muslim family, and as an 18-year-old, he joined a jihadist cell group. Um, And yet, the violence and the willingness to engage in violence, the kind of extreme views within that cell group, turned him off. And he he, he ended up rejecting Islam, rejecting religion. Uh, Like a lot of young Arab men, he got involved in the drug scene, and he gave up on, on religion altogether. Um, because he had been disillusioned. But the shock came when Bassam learned that one of his friends was a Christian. He He says, when I found out, I was surprised. Everything I had always heard about Christians was was that they were horrible people, and this friend didn't know much Christian theology, but, but he was so full of love to others that whatever and whoever they were, he just loved them. A mutual friend of ours, he writes, who was also a member of the same cell group that I had been a part of, said about him that he should be killed because he was not a, 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 a Muslim and he was not paying the, the, the jizya, the, the, the tax leveled um, on Christians and Jews under an Islamic government. Uh, but even after this mutual friend said he should be killed, Bossom says, this Christian kept loving this very same man and dealing with him professionally, with respect, and with incredible kindness. Bossom says, and so I asked him if I could have a copy of the Christian Bible. And I started to read the Bible. And I was really struck by one thing in the Bible, namely the teaching that no one is righteous except Jesus. Even those who were called God's people, like David and Jacob and even Abraham, the 12 apostles. Everyone has done something evil. The Bible is full of the sins and wrongdoing of all people except Jesus. He says, Jesus struck me as the highest example of a human being, one who really deserved to be followed. It took me some time, but I eventually read through the entire Bible. And as Bossum read, he found himself captivated by the person Jesus. Jesus who forgave sinners. Jesus who loved the unlovable. Jesus who defended the adulterous from the oppressive judgment of religious leaders. Jesus who promised to never leave his people. Jesus who died for his enemies because he loved his enemies. Jesus who promised eternal life. Bassem says, after about a year of hard struggle with myself, I decided that I wanted to follow God as he shows himself in Jesus and not as anyone else says. And so I prayed to him, the one to which the Bible pointed me. And for the first time in my life, I felt that God was here. And to say it was a strange feeling for me would be an understatement. I still remember the first time I prayed to Jesus and his father. I ran out of the room because for the first time in my life I felt the presence of God. There would be troubles. Bossom's family found his Bible and learned of his faith in Jesus. They turned him over to the security forces who sent him to prison where they tortured him in an effort to get him to deny his faith. He spent a year in jail, but he says, I couldn't deny the one that gave me life. He says, Now I'm out of jail. I've left my home country because I'm still wanted for apostasy there. I'm still walking with Jesus. I love Jesus. He loved me first, and he put himself on a cross for me. He says the most important thing for me is that I have eternal assurance that I am going to be with Jesus forever, whatever might happen to me. Here is a man who had deconstructed his faith and encountered Jesus in the process and reconstructed something new with Christ as the cornerstone. Here we see a life thriving in the midst of hardship, in the face of loss, knowing Jesus, a disenchanted Arab Muslim drug addict who saw the power of the word of God in a Christian's life and who opened himself up to the power of that same word, that word of life that points us outside ourselves to Jesus, the living word who gave his life for you and for me because he loved us. Let's pray.